Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to the House Talks podcast series. My name is Mahmoud Ababne, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House project at the University of Calgary. Today, we present an interview of Therese Mason-Pierre by Shui Niu. In this interview, Therese discusses her experience in writing poetry and editing at Augur magazine. The interview explores the publishing industry and the challenges that face emerging and younger writers. As a co-editor, Therese provides honest pieces of advice for writers while they navigate their first experience in the publishing world. Shuyin and Therese also talk about various subjects such as poetry as a craft, communities, and speculative fiction. Shuyin Yu is a PhD candidate in the Department of English at the University of Calgary. Her research interests are East Asian Diaspora Studies, Asexuality Studies, and Food Studies in the Children's and Young Adult Literature and Media. She received her HBA from the University of Toronto and her MA from the University of Calgary. Therese Mason-Pierre is an award-nominated writer and editor. Her work has been published in The Walrus, Fantasy Magazine, and elsewhere online and in print. She's the co-editor-in-chief of Ogre Magazine, and she's the author of Chatbox, Surface Area, and Manifest. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Therese. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Tea House Talks, our local podcast. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I'm good. I'm excited. I got to put on makeup for the first time in a while, so this is very exciting. I think it is very much a, a pandemic moment. I think one of the most accurate things I've seen recently is that we are no longer in COVID the crisis, but COVID the chronic. So we're in the stage of just trying to find joy in whatever it is that we can do. Would you like to quickly introduce yourself to our listeners, just in your own words, as well as what you're currently doing? Yeah, so my name is Therese Mason-Pierre. I am a writer, poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction, but the majority of my writing is poetry. I also write more literary works as well as speculative 
literature, very into fantasy and sci-fi and the ways in which that can influence and sort of affect other literatures other than fiction. So like poetry in particular. Yeah, I write a lot about uh, nature and, you know, romance and relationships and uh, jaded diaspora feels. So that's, <laughs> that's kind of what I work on. Fantastic. I know for this section of our podcast, I thought we could talk a little bit more about your work as a writer and editor, how they intersect and diverge, um, as well as maybe advice that you would have for even newer, uh, younger writers who are trying to enter our space. Uh, But we do have plans to have you perhaps give us a few of your readings, um, just so we can get a sense of your work and really get to know you a little better. So we have a good amount of time for us to engage. So why don't we begin by uh, expanding a little more on what it is that you write? So you mentioned that you work on both literary and speculative, but what, like, how do you expand on those themes that you've mentioned? So diaspora feels, uh, the idea of nature, and can we expect any work with those themes coming soon? Oh, excellent. So, well, I'll just start from like sort of the foundation, which is a lot of my poetry is persona poetry. Um, which means that like the I in my poetry is not me. Like I don't write a lot about myself. Um, And I feel like that's just sort of like me being a little avoidant because a lot of people will assume that poetry is autobiographical or confessional. And I'm kind of like trying to work against that assumption. And it's, it's an innocent assumption. That's perfectly fine. A lot of poets do write about themselves. I'm just not one of those people. Um, It's also a way for me to, make my work more fictional and more imaginative Um, because like I am only if I'm writing about my experiences that's sort of like limiting in a sense especially if I don't understand my own experiences uh, at least enough to write about them but if I'm sort of making up a a, a character or a speaker making up a scenario a setting a world then that gives me a lot more room and a lot more freedom to express things that uh, I'm really interested in writing about and I don't always have to be super honest about that either because it's fiction so like you know who cares I'm also really interested in uh, relationships and the tension and the conflict and the the yearning that lies uh, within those relationships. Um, I have a complicated relationship with like yearning as a whole. I'm like, oh, do I like yearning when it shows up in media? Mm. But that's all I write. All I write is yearning, speakers wanting things they can't have, wanting to tell people things, but they're scared. I just I just love to see that from an audience perspective as a poet. I also write a lot of speculative poetry. A lot of my poetry nowadays is about like jaded diaspora feels, but also speculative. Um, like one of the poems I'm going to read later is about sort of like like plays with time in the future and the speaker coming back to their home and realizing that it's different and they're not really sure how to feel about that. So I like that as well. I like to experiment with speculative poetry and I like to have fun. I feel like when you get to a point, I guess, in your hobby where you it starts to become kind of like another job, <laughs> uh, monetizing your hobbies, um, I find that it's kind of a little difficult to find or rediscover the joy in like why you started doing that in the first place. Or one of the ways that I stay joyful or like reclaim joy within my poetry is to write like speculative things and to have fun and to imagine. And my fiction kind of does the same thing. I'm not as prolific in my fiction as I am with, in, uh, with my poetry, but I'm, I'm very interested in writing more speculative literature and sort of joining that community fully. I follow a lot of speculative fiction writers on Twitter and I'm like, one day I'll be like you. <laughs> 
Um, but I've sort of like made a space for myself within the speculative poetry community, as far as I know. But I'm looking forward to that. I want to I want to experiment with that more. As for my creative nonfiction, I, I have a couple of personal essays out there, and I I don't like writing personal essays because it's too personal. But sometimes you just got, you just got to write the essay, you know. You just got to write it. You got to publish it and send it out, and you forget it. So I, I, I have a I have an essay that came out recently with Rue magazine that I'm trying to forget because if I think too hard about it, I'm just like, ah, this essay that I wrote about all my feelings. But no, it's it's great. Rue magazine is wonderful. Editors are great. I'm just like personally trying to like forget that it's here so I can not obsess about it and move on and write other things. But it's something that I am that I do love and that I am proud of. And that's pretty much what I'm working on right now with all the kinds of things I'm into and that inspire me. Yeah, I think that's absolutely amazing to hear about. I know you and I have already talked about this, but for our podcast listeners, I am actually teaching Therese's book Manifest in my first year English literature class. Uh, And we have also taught it in the fall semester and we're currently in the winter semester. And I think that was one of the observations that a lot of my students had about your work, which is that the idea of like vulnerabilities and these like really delicate but so sharp emotions are really kind of joyous to kind of explore and to look at. So I think it's fascinating that like, I think your authorial feelings, authorial intention, you might even say, um, definitely do translate inside of your text. So I think we should probably like, we know what you're currently working on, but I would love to kind of hear your trajectory as a writer of these topics, because as you mentioned, you work in poetry and fiction and nonfiction, and you're very much like, I believe the term in K-pop is ace, as in like, you do it all. (laughs) Oh my God, K-pop, wow, love K-pop. So yeah, have you always wanted to write about these topics? Did you grow into these topics? Do you see your interest as uh, starting to shift and move away from these topics? Or are you just like, I am in my zone, this is where I'm going to build a little house and proliferate in terms of my writing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I, poetry started off for me as like a hop, as a hobby. Well, I I originally started like when I when I decided to call myself a writer, I was writing mostly fiction. I would start and abandon lots of novels. Um, And they were all speculative. Like I I wrote about like mermaids and dragons and fairies and robots Mm -hmm. and aliens and all of those things. And like, they were just fun. I I just did it because it was fun. And in high school, I started getting more into into poetry when I realized that I was good at it. And I I stuck to like general, the the huge general topics of like relationships and nature, because that's that's it. That's all you really need. What else do you need to talk about? And I, I, I think there's a, there's still a lot to explore within those very broad genres and topics. Um, so I think I might stay there for a little while. But what I'm discovering now in my recent poetry is that I am starting to write a little bit more about myself and my life and my feelings, which is very scary because poetry is, is inherently open to interpretation. And I'm not sure if I want my life to be open to interpretation in poetry, at least in essays, I don't really care. But so like working through that very slowly is uh, a learning process, but I'm, I'm trying to do better uh, when it comes to uh, respecting my boundaries, my own boundaries. Um, and even, even while I'm discovering things about myself through writing, poetry for me has always been a craft, not necessarily like self-expression. I write poetry in the same way that like people do sports. It's just like a thing that you can just do and get better at because you want to go to the Olympics or you want to do such and such, right? Although I do understand this need to like, or this desire to to just get the story or poem out of you. I do, I do understand that. But I always, I treat poetry like, like a, like a craft. 
Um, and I want to get better at it in ways that I can. But I think I, I might do this and just with, with, still within the genres that I've that I ha- have the most fun in because like I I like what I'm I, what I'm doing right now. I still think there's a, there's a lot to explore. My first chapbook was more about like the, the the relationships, the romance, the tension, the desire, the conflicts, all of that. My second chapbook was more speculative poetry, and I considered that a second de- like a second debut because I didn't really know what people would think about that. I'm currently working on a full length manuscript that I have to write because I got two grants to write it, so I must write <laughs> I must write this book, and that kind of build builds on and combines a lot of the the themes from my first two chapbooks. I part of me is worried about you know my poetry being like samey like same same but like I'm also not worried about that I mean I'll I'll continue to write whatever I want and whatever makes me happy or intrigued it's a fine balance that I'm like trying to walk between like what do people think and what should I write versus like I don't care I'll do whatever (laughs) I'll do whatever I want um and that's also an interesting learning process yeah, I think that's also really good advice to kind of give to some of our younger listeners, novices in writing, where it's like we're work, we're like a lot of writers are trying to balance that line of like those two ends of do we care what people think or do you do what gives you joy? But I don't think there is very much a, a prescriptive answer to it, but instead just kind of describing the feelings and the emotions that you're working through. And I personally find that your description of like writing being a craft uh, fascinating because I tried to use a similar kind of language back when I was TAing for our creative writing class, our first year creative writing class. I find it super fascinating that you describe writing as a kind of craft uh, and you would draw comparisons to it to something like a sport or something like music or musical instrument or musical composition, where you are playing with that tension of both practice and polish, uh, but also creation and emotion. You know what, actually, I, I think that <laughs> playing a musical instrument is a better analogy than the sports <laughs> analogy, because I know a lot of other musicians who also want to get better mm-hmm. at their craft. Mm-hmm. Playing an instrument is also a craft. And I think that part of my sort of envisioning writing or writing poetry in particular as a craft, a thing that you like can work at if you want to and get better at if you want to, has came from a lot of uh, when I started publishing my work and I received a lot of external, not even, not even just publishing my work, just showing my work to my friends or, or my teachers. Uh, my highest grades were always in English. Um, they were always in the creative writing section of English because you have to do that for, for a lot of school. Receiving that external validation got me to realize that this is a thing that I that I am good at. And I'm not just good at it inside my own head or when my mom says I'm good at it, I'm good at it to strangers. Like strangers also think that I'm good at this. So it got me, so like that, and I'm not saying like to our listeners and to our, you know, emerging writers, not saying that you should always, always seek external validation because that will ruin you <laughs> in the long run. You need to be proud of, of your writing and you need to love your writing too. But what external validation and, and publishing did for me was, was understand that this is just a thing that I can just decide to dedicate my life to if I wanted. And I, if, if I, if I work hard enough at it and take enough care and uh, show like better enough responsibility, I can excel at this thing. Um, And that's been really helpful in a lot of ways that mindset, it helps me with things like uh, rejections. Being an editor also helps me deal with rejections as well. I know I'm no longer sad when I get, when my work is rejected. Um, It helps. So like envisioning writing as a craft has helped with dealing with rejection because I realized that it's not necessarily me it's just the work and maybe this work either isn't good enough and that's something I can just get better at or two, it is really good and they just don't have the space to put 
in their journal because you need you have limited space. So helping me to sort of reorient um, my my connection to my writing has been really helpful and I think really healthy. But also just having something that I want to excel at, uh, like a passion or like that's just also I think good for for me, like as a human, as a person, you know, it, it helps enrich my humanity, I guess. And that, that really makes me happy and proud. At the same time, I don't think that that should take away from any sort of personal joy that people find. Like some people don't just want to write and they don't really care about getting better. They don't really care about publishing their work or being in, in sort of competition slash community with other, with other writers. They just, they like it because it's fun. And I'm like, good for you if you want to do that. That's also valid. I think that's absolutely a great way to view the diversity that is happening inside of the writing community right now. Um, And also, I think it shows how there is this gigantic scope that people could really occupy and you can find your own space and joy in it. So I feel like we can probably move on to our next question, which is, are you currently influenced by any writers or topics in particular? Because we did mention in this last question about how you are very much working inside of a community of writers. Uh, Do you want to give anyone a shout out in particular? Uh, Do you have a new book slash poetry uh, chat book that you're just like, please go read it. Like, here are some of the people that you definitely should check out if you enjoy my work. Uh, yes, um, I'm influenced by a lot of a lot of people. Part of me feels like it's not fair to be influenced by people I know currently, even though like that's the whole point of community. So I'm like, I'm gonna list a bunch of writers who I know just in real life, <laughs> and that's and that's fine. But I I really like the work of Faith Arkerful Arkerful, and she is a writer. Her poetry is beautiful. Uh, she doesn't have a chapbook or a book right now. I'm also really a fan of um, a poet named uh, Sanawani. And she has a book coming out with a Nancy, I believe, called, I think it's called My Grief, The Sun. Her work is very, is beautiful. And I, I always like leave, leave the page thinking about it for, for days and weeks at a time. In terms of like being an editor, like a, a person whose work I'm very fascinated with is a, a Nigerian writer a Nigerian poet by the name of um, Abu Bakr Sadiq. And he has work in Uncanny Magazine, which is a speculative literature magazine. And his poetry always blows me away. Um, I've been trying to like, we we have it. He's going to, Augur is going to publish him, I think next year or like th- this year, this year. We're in 2022. But every time I read his poetry, I'm just like, ah, oh, it's so good. It's just the, the, his, his lyricism and his imagery and like, like, I don't know. It's it's with, without being he writes without without being overbearing. He leaves the doors open for interpretation and imagination. And it's just some of the most beautiful writing I've ever seen or read in my life. <laughs> so please check out Abu Bakr Siddiq's work. He's awesome. I guess those are the people I'm currently influenced by right now. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that I have always been really inspired by like your creativity, but also your dedication to community and kind of lifting up all of these other writers. Uh, and I think this is probably a really good transition into our next topic, which is like you're one of the originators of the book look trend on Twitter and Instagram. And I believe it was featured on a magazine cover. Pretty sure I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit more about that particular artistic side, the way that it has very much spurred a very unique way of engagement, kind of like what brought you to it, but also like some of the ways that you are still very much like engaging with 
books through this very different medium. Um, I think one of the really amazing things about the book look trend is that it's really created a vibrant, as in both colorful eyeshadow uh, and also in discussion community. And so, yeah, if you would be able to talk just a little bit more about that particular kind of space, uh, what kind of led you to that inspiration and kind of the effects of it that you've noticed as one of the originators. Yeah, so that was a really great time in 2020. Um, Every single day I was putting on makeup and taking photos of it in my room and just posting them on on Twitter. And it started, well, I I actually, I don't consider myself one of the originators. I started this with, um, there was an author, a poet named uh, Domenica Martinello. Mm -hmm. uh, And she's the author of All Day I Dream About Sirens. She's a poet and she has like an Instagram page Mm -hmm. where she does like makeup looks inspired by book covers and she does this just for fun and I was like that's really cool so in like March of 2020 I believe I had I was supposed to review two books that I've been putting off for like a month so I sat down for three days I read each book in a day and then I did the review it was about 800 words and I was I was I felt so good about that after finally getting my work done after months of procrastination I was like how can I celebrate this so the books were um, Shame on Me by Tessa McEwen and they said this would be fun by Trinity Martis. So in order to sort of like celebrate myself for finally putting off a thing that I should have done and celebrate the books because the books were also amazing, awesome, really great reads. I just did a little, you know, makeup look on on my eyes, you know, just like, oh, this is sort of like, you know, about the, uh, with the book covers. And I should posted it on Facebook, uh, Facebook, I believe, or Twitter. Uh, and I was like, this is really great. I'm so happy. And then people were like, wow, that's so amazing. I should do it too. And I was like, yeah, welcome. And I, I started doing this every single day for about a year, I think. And then other people joined in. Um, Jenny Hagen Wills, author of Older Sister Not Necessarily Related, Jay Simpson, who's a poet, um, Nisha Patel, spoken word poet, Alicia Elliott, uh, Victoria Liao, other bunch of other writers and poets started joining in and this is really great. And yeah, I was on the cover of this magazine. We got interviewed by Toronto Festival of Authors and we had profiles everywhere. And it was was just supposed to be like something really fun to celebrate writers, especially writers whose work and whose books, debut books maybe weren't, maybe would not have gotten a lot of like publicity and attention because of the pandemic. So we decided to, to, to do that. I was, look, I was just looking at like purely the cover because <laughs> um, I'm like, these are, these are great covers. I want to shout out the artists as well, you know, like great, great cover designs. Um, it just became really fun. I wanted to, to do this because um, not only to sort of show my appreciation, but also because I just like makeup. And it had been a while since I, I had worn it. And I, I have all this, I have so much makeup, so much makeup in my bathroom, so much. And I'm buying more every week um, just to use up some of the stuff I had. And if I could do this in a way that was helping, then I would, then that would be great. And I would love to do it. But also like for me to get better at doing makeup. So I would have to do this. People were expecting me to post a new look, you know, but I just really had fun. And I stopped when it no longer became something I could do every day. And maybe I might do like another one, like once in a while here and there, but yeah, it's, it was completely on my, um, um, based on my time and my energy. Uh, Cause at that time I had stopped working. Like I, I work at the library and we were sort of like not working for three months. And I was like, this is something I can do for three months so I can engage with people. And it was really fun. I totally loved that process of the, of that. I loved it. Yeah. I completely relate to you on, I have so much makeup. And yeah, I keep on buying more. Um, so it's always great to have a creative outlet. And I think 
what you've mentioned about how it was at the beginning of the pandemic and so how COVID very much threw a curveball at a lot of things, including the whole publishing book tour engagement that I think a lot of writers really enjoy and love and form communities with and how that book look trend becomes this its own kind of like little social media way of really inspiring joy and hope for a lot of people. And so, yeah, I would, I'm very excited. I follow you all of your social media and we should probably give your social media shout out at the end so people can follow you next time you do post one of your book looks. But yeah. So, you know, I think book look is a really great transition into talking about the literary spaces that you are a part of and the communities that you have very much helped curate uh, and develop. You're currently co-editor-in-chief at Augur Magazine, and you were, you're were you really involved with this tight-knit community, I think especially like the Toronto branch of Canlet, of like what we call Canlet. And so I was wondering if you want to speak a little bit more about your experiences as an Augur editor how you got involved, but also the fact that you very much took on this new huge responsibility um, with both co-editor-in-chief and also AugurCon. So like, how are you feeling as new co-editor? How is the workload <laughs> happening? Changes we can expect? There are several mini questions in that question, so I have to pick one. It is. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> so No, it's fine. So I'll talk first about community. I think or I should say communities, um, because there are multiple communities within within Canadian literature and just writing in general. Something that I feel is very important for emerging writers who want to get, I guess, get better at their work and want to share their work. And the and the communities that you're part of doesn't have to be like, you know, big shot editors or like writers. It can just be like you and your friends. Maybe you guys get to get together and go to events. That's also fine. Um, one of the things I learned as I was at an event and some one, one of the things that one of the speakers said to me was that like not everybody needs to be a part of this particular community. Um, that this like the Canlet as we sort of like generally see it is not always welcoming to everyone and not everyone needs to be in this particular community. So it's more important, I guess, that people sort of find their own or make their own. But, you know, that's also very difficult. I think that one of the reasons why I'm able to sort of be in multiple spaces and sort of meet new people is for three reasons. Um, One is I'm very enthusiastic. I like these spaces. I like writing. I like meeting writers and and supporting emerging writers in their work. Um, The second reason is I am extroverted. I like people. (laughs) I like being around. A lot of writers are introverted. That's like the stereotype of being, if you're a writer, you're introverted. I fight the stereotype every day of my life. I am an extrovert. I love socializing. I gain energy when I am socializing with people. So that also allows me to like talk to strangers and to congratulate, you know, first time open mic readers at an event and buy people's chapbooks and go to different events and things like that. And the third reason, which highlights a huge problem in a lot of these event spaces is that I am able-bodied. Like I can walk upstairs. I can stay up really late and then get up early to go to work and not, I do live in Toronto. So if you don't live in Toronto, that might be a little bit more difficult for you to catch buses and go on trains and things like that. So it's a huge, it's a huge problem within uh, the problem of accessibility is is quite difficult and it's, gonna, it's not insurmountable. I think I think it's something that event organizers need to pay attention to when they when they claim that they want you know diversity and they want to be inclusive. Then um, that you know inclusivity also includes inclusivity for disabled people as well. So one of the reasons I'm able to get around is because I I'm able-bodied that I can and not everyone can. But that doesn't mean that people can't get involved. A lot of online communities as well are very helpful for fostering, you know, engagement and inclusive spaces. That's something that we want to do with Augur. 
I'm going to shift over to Augur. <laughs> like when we did AugurCon, uh, which was uh, November 2020, I believe. Um, we're doing it again this year, 2022. We're doing it every other year because we are tired. So we, we can't do this every year. One of the things we did in 2020 was we made a virtual conference, uh, which was not only great because we could get more people from ver- from other from the whole the whole world essentially or the whole continent but also people didn't have to travel people didn't have to get hotels and like you know other kinds of of uh experience like other mobility barriers to to get to a location but even so we were looking at when we had planned to have the event in person we had looked at um, more accessible spaces but the online platform worked really well we used zoom and Streamyard, and we used discord People really enjoyed it, and it was a way for us to sort of find um, more diverse writers and speakers because we we essentially had like no one has an excuse now if you're if you're online you can just you can just you can reach out to anyone really with an internet connection. And one of the things that we pride ourselves at Augur is through giving a platform to marginalized voices and underrepresented voices and, and creators. Um, that's there, there's lots of spaces for, you know, your traditional, like, cis, white, head guys who always complain that they're being discriminated against, but that's not true. You'll find lots of places for them, but we wanted our space to be specifically for these these writers that may not have an opportunity or a chance to, to showcase their work. Um, that's something that's really valuable to us. And so as editor-in-chief, I'm, or as co-editor-in-chief, I should say, I am very careful with looking at submissions and choosing which ones to longlist or shortlist. Um, I'm mainly in charge of the, the poetry section. Uh, my other co-editor and chief Lawrence Dewan does the, the fiction and it really matters to us like which voices we we want to hear from and making sure that these long lists that we create are balanced in that way. As well as, you know, publishing work by Canadians because we're a Canadian journal and I don't know what Canada is doing on the world stage when it comes to spec literature, but you know, we're we're here. We're doing things. We're going to be here. We're, I think we're the only SFWA pro recognized journal in Canada, which is fun. We pay pro rates, which also means that our creators, when they publish with us, they are eligible for sort of the big uh, spec awards like the Hugo and the Nebula, things like that. And that's something that we're really proud to give our writers to. Yeah, I think it's absolutely amazing the kind of work that both you and Augur Magazine are doing right now. And, you know, the ethos that you are kind of describing really does translate to, I think, the quality of the work, uh, but also the community that has fostered. So just as a quick side for our listeners, do you want to quickly give us a definition for speculative literature that Augur Magazine publishes, as well as what it means for Augur to be recognized by the SF? WA and uh, paying pro rates, just for terminology sake. Yeah. So we, so Argo Magazine publishes speculative literature. One of our goals is to sort of bridge the gap between the traditional like literary realists, which is what people mean when they say literary, they mean literary realists and speculative literature. There's so much work in between and we're trying to like find or we sort of, we sort of advertise our, our journal as like, if it's too spec for literary magazines and too literary for spec magazines, you should submit it to Augur because that's perfect. And we also take a lot of work that's very dreamy is what we're calling it. So like work that could be speculative, maybe if you held it up to the light in a certain way, but also doesn't have to be. Like we publish work that has no speculative, quote unquote, speculative content at all, but just has the vibe, you know, just has that like really dreamy, soft vibe and we like a lot of soft stories, a lot of stories that are very reflective, that are sort of character driven, 
where there's a lot of focus on the world. Like one of the things our editor, our publisher, um, Carrie Byrne says is like, like we don't need plot, like nothing has to happen uh, in your stories. And that's fine. Cause I feel like a lot of people like they, uh, they get kind of agitated about like, oh, but like, I, I'm just, I just want to write a story about, you know, a frog and a ladybug and they're just chilling in the backyard. And that's great. You can do that and you can submit it to Augur. That's great. We love that. Uh, we don't necessarily need like, you know, the explosions, and the jailbreaks and the, you know, carts, basic chases. We don't need all that. We, we love, we love presence. We love good vibes and we love really heartwarming stories. But we also tell um, potential submitters like not to self-reject. You know, if you feel like your work is a good fit, please submit. And when we tell you, you know, maybe it's not for us, but please submit again. Hopefully we mean it. Like really do, really do submit again. And we publish majority Canadian content. So um, as per our grant guidelines, 70, at least 75% of our work is Canadian and or, or by people who live in Canada. Yes. So, and in terms of um, our work being SFWA recognized, so the SFWA is an organization in the States that sort of sets pro rates for magazines, for speculative literature magazines, big ones like, um, you know, Tor, Uncanny, uh, Strange Horizons, uh, Asimov's Analog, those sort of bigger magazines. And their rate is eight cents for fiction, eight cents American, which is 11 cents Canadian. So we like to match that. And because we are considered pro, a pro magazine, according to SFWA guidelines, that means that when people publish our, their work with us, they are eligible for bigger literary or bigger speculative awards within the science fiction and fantasy community, um, which is a really great like boon for them. and means a lot to be able to provide our writers with that kind of uh, eligibility and potentially prestige. Every every once in a while, there's a sort of like, or a, a couple times a year, I should say, there's an award season where people post their eligibility, store, uh, their stories and poems that are eligible for awards. Um, and if you publish with Augur, your story is eligible for an award. So that's really exciting. Yeah, I think I think that's something that we, we like to be able to provide for uh, for our writers and our creators. Yeah, I think like this podcast has kind of mentioned a few times, I think it is a really great way to kind of get a sense of how those communities are very much not just, you know, for the smaller, more personal support, but also the larger, more structural support as well. So yeah, since we're talking about the whole publishing side, do you have anything that you wish people would know just as an editor? Any hints and suggestions for their submission process? What is one submission faux pas that you definitely would warn people from doing? Yeah, so the whole like, what is uh, like, take it from a pro, here is how you kind of like best practices that you should probably mm-hmm. adopt as an emerging writer. Yes. Oh my God. Several. I want to be on a panel where that's just like just editors talking about the do's and don'ts of submitting. I think uh, I have uh, three, three main things I think would be interesting to, to, to know. One is that submission guidelines are not, they're not guidelines, they're rules. You have to follow them. <laughs> exactly. Because it's also like an interesting way to like disqualify people, just people who don't follow the guidelines. Like if you submit like a 40 page, 40, like 40 pages of poems to us, like we can't accept that because our limit is 10 pages. So like clearly you didn't read the guidelines and your work will be rejected just because of that, because you didn't read the guidelines. And uh, another thing is when your work is rejected, it's always hard to like keep repeating this, but rejection is really hard. It's really difficult, especially as an emerging writer. One of the, the things that writers, I feel, uh, it would behoove them to learn as quickly as possible is the ability to separate your work from your worth. And I know this is very like, because we live in a very capitalist society, like that tells us that our 
work is our worth um, with writing because rejection is so common. It's the, it's the norm. It's normal to be rejected. Um, if this happens to you over and over again, um, it's going to crush your spirit. <laughs> um, it's going to make you not want to write again. And But we want you to write, you know, so we, we, need to, we need to expedite that process of, you know, learning that just because your work is rejected by, uh, or not accepted, I should say, by a magazine, that doesn't mean you're a terrible writer. Becoming an editor has changed the way I see rejection, like, because I'm the one now doing the rejecting. I'm like, it can be really great, but maybe it's not, it's not for us. Maybe another magazine would really love it and you should submit it there. We encourage simultaneous submissions, which means that you can submit the same piece of work to multiple journals. Or maybe it means that, well, your work was really good, but we only had six spots and like we had to, it was really hard to like find our top six and your work just didn't get in the top six and it's really good. We're sorry, but we can't. There's so many different reasons why your work might get rejected. And so to like, to zero in on, oh, it's because I'm a bad writer, you know, that doesn't do anyone any, any favors. And I guess the third thing to remember is uh, editors are people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're, we're people too and with Augur in particular we have an editorial team of about 12 people and when work gets to long lists and short lists we might really want to champion this work but just like we were outvoted and we you know we can't we can't publish your work and that's sad right so like you know sometimes people will send you know really mean emails about like how dare we reject their work and we're just gatekeepers and blah 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 and that's not fun to receive we're not these like we're not an institution you know we're not like the Canadian government you know that has like the the, the power to effectively ruin your life like we're just we're just a bunch of people we're just young, we're, we're young people living in Toronto like it's hard out here uh, we, we do a lot of volunteer work uh, not all editors are volunteers. Most of them are. We're, we we want to, to publish work that we think is beautiful and that the world should see. So it kind of like sucks when we're sort of not given that, you know, that that grace and that space and that humanity from, from writers. Um, I, I know that not, like, the vast majority of writers are not editors, but it's a different, it's a different role to play. And I understand this as someone who's a writer and an editor that, you know, it we're like, please be nice to us because <laughs> uh, it's a lot of work. Yeah. So I guess that, that's the submission faux pas. It's like, if you get rejected, please don't be mean and send us rude messages about how, you know, we'll, we'll regret this and things like that. It's, that's not, that's not good for you because I, you know, I have editor friends. I will tell my editor friends that you did that. So don't do that. <laughs> but yeah, those are my, my tips. I think those are really fantastic tips and like a lot of really great wisdom. I think since this is a podcast format and you can't actually see our amazing guest, I think it is a good thing to mention that like both you as co-editor-in-chief and Augur Magazine are both really quite young, that like you are entering a space that has kind of a, a history and a legacy, but also that you are very much changing it because of, I guess, youth and exuberance, but also just recognizing what has happened in Canlit in recent years um, and really going, hey, you know, there are ways that we can change this um, to be a little bit better. So yeah, recently on social media, I believe Augur Magazine has announced that Augur is going to be even trying to be even more accessible to readers. So that includes like trying to strike that balance between retaining value for paid membership um, and paid subscribers, but also making that work accessible to most readers. And I think Augur Magazine has always made strides to be accessible to communities. And so 
I would wondering if you would like to speak a little bit more about the ethos of those decisions, the kind of behind the scenes processes, if you are able to share it, and also how they're playing out, the challenges, the benefits, the rollout, and kind of maybe the reactions of it and kind of like what you hope to see going forward. Yeah, um, well, the majority of this hasn't really happened as of yet. These are sort of like, because we have a lot, we have so many things. There's so many things to do. I have to reapply for all our grants this year. But yeah. one of the things we're, we're really focused on and we're really uh, motivated in, in getting started is, um, yeah, making our work more accessible to readers and making our work available online uh, as well. I, I went back, I talked about, you know, like being eligible, work being eligible for awards. And one of the things that that is necessary for that to happen is for people to be able to read the work. Right. It's hard to like know how to nominate or to or to judge or to vote if the work is sort of either behind a paywall or you have to subscribe. So we're working on finding a way to make um, all of our back issues and our current issues on, online on our website to to read. So for people who are nominating work so they have a place to go to to make their their decision. And that, that benefits our writers, too, because, you know, there isn't sort of like a lot of hoops that people have to jump in order to jump through in order to to read the work that they, they really love. And um, we're also thinking of, I don't know if this is like, if I'm allowed to say this, but we're also thinking of making subscriptions free for certain um, marginalized groups because um, we think it's just it's just helpful. Um, we, we don't want to be, our, our subscription costs aren't very high to begin with, but if there's anything we can do to, to sort of reduce that for people, because, you know, like $5 or $10 or $20 might not be a lot for some people, but it might be quite a bit for for others. Um, so that's one way in which we're, we're trying to sort of... Um, to bridge that gap, to make our work more accessible and more able to, to and more and, and really to to reach more people, because that's one of the things we, we want to do. We want people to know about our great Canadian content, our speculative literature, or maybe our maybe our first time our first time writers or first time publishers, uh, first time published writers, I should say, and get their names out there because we want to be seen as facilitating and and guiding and supporting these writers and and their growth. Um, so anything we can do to make that happen we are all for. Uh, I think that is really kind of an amazing ethos to adopt. Um, so yeah, I think we are already seeing how Augur magazine has really shifted a lot of the publishing standards, but also like very much joining a new generation of publishers that are making those changes. And I think we're seeing how Augur is modeling uh, how a magazine, especially a speculative literature magazine in Canada, and how you know similarly small presses that are also working on the same scale uh, could be run and operated. Uh, and so I am super curious about like what would you like to see uh, continue to change in the publishing world? Um, what are some changes that are starting to happen that you would love to see continue to happen? As well as just like anything in the publishing world that you would love to kind of keep as it is currently right now. And just, you know, your imagination for the future of Canadian publishing, small presses, and these very much community-oriented magazines. Yeah, I think that um, Augur is doing a really great job in terms of how we treat our creators like every time we have a new issue people will send because we also do a survey every time we publish so people can sort of like or our creators can share their thoughts on you know what they liked and what they didn't like and every time we're, we're get we're get we're get we're getting uh 
uh, surprise and appreciation for how well our editors treat our writers. And I'm like, why is this surprising? <laughs> um, like, I remember I was editing a poem and I did like my, because, you know, we have standards that we sort of share with our editors um, that this is how you're supposed to you know, engage with the work, you're supposed to be author-centric, um, whatever they want, you know, help them, guide them, things like that. I was doing an editorial note for a poem and someone, the poet had said, I've never seen an editorial note for a poem before. Like, thank you so much for engaging in my work this way. And thank you for asking all these questions. People are really appreciating the work that we're doing and they're sort of advocating, you know, for us and let, telling, you know, their friends and their their social media following to be on the lookout and to, to be aware of the things that we're, we're doing and the things that we want to. Um, and I feel like that's very important for, for publishers and for small presses. Too many times I've seen, you know, cases is like online journals or small presses who don't really treat their writers very well or who sort of like cheat people out of their money or who you know make promises and then don't keep their promises and just leave writers like kind of stranded and it, it hurts for first time first time writers or people who are who are sort of early in their writing career because it, it leaves them disillusioned that no one really cares about them so we we, we keep all that in mind I'm very vigilant online I see the things that are going on <laughs> and I'm sort of like striving to make sure that we don't we don't really do that um, and it's always like a like a like a back and forth like a communication thing we try to be as transparent as possible to like let writers know that you know we're not just like taking your poems and stories and like running behind a dark curtain and you don't know what goes on and then like ooh publishing like that's that's not how it is you know we got schedules we got deadlines and dates and people really appreciate that I I feel like we are one of I guess the more sort of vocal and the more present speculative literature magazines in Canada right now. And if there, and there are others, I'm sure, hopefully we're setting a good example for anyone who wants to sort of start their own journal, uh, because it's, it's a process, especially if you're an all volunteer staff, like we are taking, like managing your time and taking time for yourself and your energy and your needs is something that's quite important. Um, something that our publisher always stresses, like, you're, because you're volunteering, your work should serve you and your career and your needs. And if that doesn't happen anymore, maybe it's time to switch roles. And we know, like you and I both know that like publishing is sort of notorious for overworking people and not paying them what they should be paid. Uh, and we don't think that model is very sustainable. Um, we want to sort of foster a community where people are feel joy and you know are appreciated and get the get their um, the rewards that they that they deserve and they and the money that they need to survive in the system. But we're all here because we love the space and we, we want to make sure that we push and enact and encourage change, positive change for, for the future because we're, we're a very future-focused magazine. We, want, we think about like what writing and what the literature communities could look like in the future. And at times, like how do we create that future? Yeah. I think that is an absolutely admirable and amazing goal to have as a publisher and as a magazine, um, I think one of the words that we haven't really used but could definitely apply to your work and Augur's work is treating the community with kindness. And I think it's kindness towards our authors, it's kindness towards our workers and editors, and kindness towards the community in as a whole. So I thought we could kind of conclude with just kind of general advice and talking about experiences and also just like where you might want to consider getting started. Um, for people who don't know, Therese and I actually met at the Heart House 
Library and Literary Committee in Writers Co-op. So we have known each other partially because of the amazingness of a creative writing community. So I thought we could kind of conclude this portion of our uh, interview conversation with talking a little bit about kind of advice for people who want to get started. Um, I thought we could kind of divide it into two parts. I think the first part is definitely for our uh, younger novice writers who are still in school or university, because I think it curates a very different space for people to engage in, um, but also for people who are slightly older, who are perhaps trying to balance their adult lives with work and children and careers, and also maybe just like rediscovering their passions uh, for something like writing and trying to get involved with literary spaces. So I guess, would you have any advice for those two groups who may be overlapping, um, especially for our mature students? So yeah, ideas of how to get involved, uh, advice for kind of curating that space and community. Yeah. So the first thing I would say, I guess, to all groups is that like, there's no like rush. I say this as a hypocrite who is always <laughs> rushing all the time, uh, but there, there is no, yeah, there is no rush. You can write at whatever pace that is comfortable for you. And if that means that you don't publish your first piece till you're 60 that's fine that's okay and you know it doesn't mean you failed Uh, it doesn't mean that you're you know slow that's okay another tip for everyone is just to read there was like I saw something online going around online about how you know it's arrogant to expect writers to read or something like that but I I don't think that's controversial at all I I think that if you want to write um, reading is also very important, um, especially if you're starting. If you're starting out, if you're interested in creative writing, you're probably already a big reader. Um, maybe you, you want to read in the genres that you want to write in, just to see what other people are doing. Because writing has been around for thousands of years, storytelling has been around for even longer, and there are people who've done this before you, and maybe see like what they're doing and how you can maybe emulate and and sort of like be inspired by by them. So for, for younger writers or emerging writers in school and university, what's great about school and university is that you're sort of like in a closed space and universities generally have like hundreds and hundreds of clubs. Like U of T has like, like 700 or something clubs. And that's a great space to find like a writing group or most universities I'll say have some sort of creative writing type club. I don't know if I'm probably not wrong, but if you maybe like reach out and find, find one. I think if you're sort of writing you know, by yourself, you know, in your little notebook at home, I feel like, you know, getting your work out there or at least sharing your work with other people, if that's something you're interested in, might be very beneficial. But if that's not, you know, your cup of tea, that's also okay. But I do think that is essential if you want to publish your work that's going to be viewed by other people. And one thing is, I feel like it's very important to also like love your own writing. Uh, yeah, if you, you have to like write or like love what you're writing uh, and be proud of it uh, yourself because you might set yourself up for a lot of disappointment and failure if you're completely depending on external validation. I can be like general tips to everyone. But uh, another thing that's important is that if you do have standards for yourself for writing, um, if you do have particular ways that you want to write or things that you consider to be good writing, it's good to sort of reflect and think critically about where those standards come from. You know, when you like, what do you consider good writing and why? Why do you want to emulate that and why? Um, I'm always in favor of writers, especially writers who publish their work, to think critically about why it is they are publishing their work. Because to publish your work means to make your work available to the public and asking yourself why the public needs to see this 
is a good question to sort of reflect on over and over again as you sort of go forward in your writing career. And these are quite valuable things to ask each other as well. Like we all have known, we all have heard of people who publish work that is harmful and offensive and short-sighted and you know, where were, where, what happened in, in those cases? Like what, along, what, where did it go wrong? You know, so I think reflection is quite important. I, I also want to always distinguish between like younger writers and emerging writers, because not all emerging writers are young. If you're older, I would sort of say the same thing about, you know, there's no, there's really no rush. Um, if you had to take time to raise a family or um, work and, you know, get money to pay the bills, that's that's totally valid. And your writing and your energy and your time is not worth less than someone who is like in their early 20s with like a five book deal. You know, I feel like we're, we're sort of enamored by like the amazing like 30 under 30 type people. Uh, it makes us feel like we're failures or we're not doing what we're supposed to do or we're not real writers. But I feel like most of the writers you don't really are not really like that. And you don't really see their stories. Uh, you don't really see their stories either. For the writers who are introverts, <laughs> who aren't extroverts like me and don't want to, don't like to go out and leave their house and meet people. I would say that online spaces and online communities are really helpful. Um, I've uh, found a lot of different forums online where you can interact with other writers. Twitter as it's a garbage site, but I have met a lot of really, really cool fun writers on there and then we support each other's work people I've never met in real life because they live on the other side of the country but they're part of my community too so if you want to that's that's also a great way to find to find writers to follow writers and to see what they're what they're doing and it's just as valuable and just as worth it yeah and I guess another thing is that um, my last my last note that I'll, that I'll say is that you don't have to publish your work to be considered a writer I think that like non-writers will often use that as like a way of legitimizing your writing, but you don't need to publish your work to be considered a writer. All you need to do is write. But even then, like you don't have to write very consistently. Writing, I think is like an, an identity as well as a thing you do. So like, don't let people pressure you into publishing your work when you're not ready or when you don't want to. Yeah, yeah. that's my advice. <laughs> I think those are some really great pieces of advice for younger writers, emerging writers, and also introverted writers. I would just quickly mention also really good advice for introverted writers is to find an extroverted friend and get them to adopt you. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, like we had covered a lot of really uh, interesting topics, but you know, before we kind of sign off, um, I was wondering if you have anything else that you would really feel would be great for our listeners to know about. Um, any topics that I have had a chance to talk about that you would love to kind of expand on? No, I'm I'm pretty good. I think your questions were quite comprehensive, so I'm good. Mm-hmm. I'm, I say it's now, then like immediately when we leave, I'm like ah, gone. All right. Uh, do we? Would you mind giving a quick shout out to your social media and Augur Magazine social media and any other sites that you may think would be great for our listeners to find? Um, where can we find you on social media? Yeah, so I have a website. My website is just my full name, TheresMasonPierre.com. And I use that website mainly as like an archive because I forget where the things I publish. Um, so you'll find a lot of links to my poetry, my fiction, my nonfiction. My, I also do book reviews and I also occasionally run workshops. So all that stuff will be on my website. My Twitter and Instagram are Therese, the letter M, and then Pierre. So you can find me on Twitter, follow me on Twitter if you want. And Augur's website is augurmag, A-U-G-U-R-M-A-G dot com. 
agamag.com and you can purchase, uh, you can subscribe to our magazine, purchase issues and back issues there. Our upcoming issue, issue 5.1 is coming out in the spring, May, June-ish. So be on the lookout for that. And our theme is Joyful Imaginations uh, because we want joy right now. <laughs> and on Twitter, um, we're also at augermag. So give us a follow if you're so inclined. Yeah, we're, we're a fun bunch and just check us out. Amazing. Uh, so if you really enjoyed listening about the communities that Therese is a part of, the communities that are very much emerging in Canadian literature, uh, definitely follow our amazing guest, but also other authors who you may be interested in engaging with on social media, um, especially as we are continuing on in COVID the chronic times. All right. I believe that is it for our interview. Thank you so much, Therese. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed this interview of Therese Messon-Pierre by Xu Yun Yun. I am Mahmoud Ababni and you are listening to Tia House. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and the Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stukul at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Xu Yu, Rebecca Jelaine, Micah Jacobson, Shazia Hafiz, Mark Herman Lynch, Ryan Stern, and me, Mahmoud Ababne. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.teahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.